Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'd like to welcome to my podcast Nataki Pettigrew. Nataki Pettigrew is the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer for the Hamilton Southeastern School. She has held that position just a little longer than a year now. So Nataki, Nataki Pettigrew, Thank you very much uh, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. And I, and I wanted to talk to you for the first time at a podcast at a particular time because this is Black History Month, the month of February. Absolutely. I went back and tried to find the history of Black History Month, and there I found a little controversy about mm-hmm. that. Some people go back to 1915 with the two particular uh Uh, figures at that time that were well-known, Carter G. Woodson, I see you have a book of his with you right now, and Jesse E. Moreland. Mm -hmm. Others go back to 1926 with a group called the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. It became official in the United States when then uh, President Gerald Ford Mm -hmm. made the first uh, declaration in 1976, and we've had one every year since then. So give me your take on the history of Black History Month. Yeah, so, and, and I'm going to read a section that I think is important before I answer that. So I do have the book, um, Fugitive Pedagogy. It's a great read, but it does mention the work of Carter G. Woodson and how Black History Month became just an integral part of who we are today. Um, but it didn't start off as an entire month, as you know. It started off as a week, and a big part of that was the Carter G. Woodson recognized that Black Americans were not being um, recognized or celebrated for their achievements in the classroom and otherwise. And so this little section says, the goal for Negro History Week, which is what it used to be called, um, was to vindicate black humanity. It was about bringing into being new scripts of knowledge for black students to learn from, scripts with new visions of the world and black people's role within it. So when we think about even, um, you know, the tumultuous, you know, past couple of years with COVID and all the challenges that we've had um, around race and um, and its impact on the school system, Carter G. Woodson really challenged us to celebrate the goodness in the Black experience, right? So it's not just about talking about adversity or talking about all the historical struggles that we've had. And, and not to say that's not important, but it's also about what I refer to as, you know, black joy and talking about, you know, who are the people that have made an impact on this world that we really don't know about? Who are the people, you know, we don't, when we talk about, um, Rosa Parks, we also talk about Claudette Colvin, who was, you know, nine months prior to Rosa Parks, but you don't hear about that in a history book. And so I think it allows us an opportunity to come together and learn from each other, learn about the experiences of black people, learn about those that have contributed to this nation um, in a very productive and inspirational way. So as a 70 year old man, of course, 
when I was in school, Rosa Parks was just happening. It wasn't even history at that right, point. I'm right. showing my age here. But I do recall some African-American historical figures, part of my history experience in school, both in the elementary school and, and in high school. But it wasn't much. Uh, explain, if you can, you sort of touched on this. I'll give you a chance to talk more about it. Explain why celebrating Black History Month is important in this day and time. Mm-hmm. So I think it allows us to challenge our perceptions of black history. Um, <clears throat> we know that when we talk about race specifically, it strikes this emotional chord, right? And so when we think about the impact of black history, and I like to tell my own children, you know, it's accessible to you 365 days out of the year. Um, it's not just isolated to one month. Really, let's talk about the contributions all, all year long. But it helps unite us as a country to see who we are individually and how we have collectively made this country great. I think the challenge um, as as a parent, as a former English teacher, is that when you look in historical books or you look in textbooks, sometimes the great history that we that we know about in in the lived black experience is not articulated in that history book or some of the atrocities are not mentioned in the history book. So I give an example. Um, we wouldn't know about the Tulsa massacre, right? We're talking about, um, you know, hundreds of people, of black people that died. Um, and that's not really um, identified in history books. I, I've taken a look at different history books in different districts. And in some districts, it's a page. In some districts, it's a paragraph. In some, it's a couple of sentences. So this allows us an opportunity to be honest about history of black Americans and then to say, OK, now that we see what has happened, if there is, you know, if we're talking about the historical piece of it, then what can we do to ensure that our children or our grandchildren have a better um, future that allows us to be um, a little more connected than we were previously, right? You know, it's strange. Popular culture seems to be catching up with this. And of all places, I found it at a <clears throat> HBO, because yeah. HBO had a recent uh, series, a very popular one, mm -hmm. which was centered on the Tulsa massacre and, yep. and told that story in a way that a lot of Americans did not know about mm -hmm. it, as mm -hmm. you said, in your history books. And they're not, even in college, I don't remember much discussion of my American history right. uh, of, of that Tulsa massacre. And HBO has a current series going on that I'm, I think I'm three episodes into it now called The Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. And they have an African-American character who makes friends with uh, this this woman who's part of this Gilded Age family, mm -hmm. this wealthy family, and she's a, uh, a well-educated woman. Uh, she writes these stories, and she's about to be published until she walks into the publisher's office, and they realize her race. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a serious problem, even though she has this great talent for writing. Mm -hmm. And they had chosen her writing uh, over a lot of the white men who were sitting waiting she uh, was unable to get published mm -hmm. because she would not be able to be herself and would not be able to publicly let people know that was hers. So I'm finding popular culture, of all things, is starting to to catch on to this, this, this theme. What do you think? Absolutely. And even thinking about 
that reminds me of hidden figures, right? Yes. So we didn't even mm-hmm. know. I mean, the history books haven't shown us the impact that these three black women had on our nation. Thinking of Katherine Johnson, I didn't know her story coming through school. That wasn't taught to me. Um, and so I think that's a prime example of not really having access to the actual experiences of black people. And that's really what Carter G. Woodson talked about. It's not here in our history books. It's not here in our curriculum sometimes. Um, And so we have to find ways to make sure that we are accentuating the positive experiences of black people. You know, Hidden Figures is a great example because I also do some film criticism, and that's just a great film. Absolutely. Everything else aside. So when you tell the story well and, and it becomes a popular uh, uh, film, mm-hmm. I think that's a, that is a very – and that you're right. Most, I had no idea Absolutely. that, that uh, uh, of those women having such a major impact on our space program to the point where the astronauts didn't even want to go until they saw the, these women run the numbers. Absolutely. Uh, which was, was, was quite striking. Uh, I want to give you a chance to discuss how uh, you, as, as people here at HSE schools, are are are, are and, and plan to celebrate uh, Black History Month. Absolutely. So um, Fall Creek Junior High has a um, program this Friday at City Hall, February 11th, 6 p.m. And so I have had a chance to um, talk with Miss Freeney, who is the art teacher over there, and the artwork is amazing. So I'm hoping that people will come out and see that. Fishers High School um, Future Black Leaders has a Heritage Month celebration coming up on February the 16th at 6.30, and that's a pretty large event that gets a lot of people involved, not just in Fishers, but in Indiana. So I know um, the Divine Nine will be there. There will be a representation from HBCU. So that will be a great time. And then, of course, um, Southeastern High School has a gala on the 17th, the Black Student Union. Um, It's at 6 p.m. Tickets are now on sale for that. And I believe they're handing out quite a few thousand dollars worth of scholarships as well. And then if you had a chance when you walked in, there was an art display, and that was the artwork from all of our schools, um, from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade, some of the artwork um, that students have produced in their art class. So make sure you take a look at that when you get a chance. And uh, yes, here at the administration building, and I would recommend find a way to go to City Hall this month because mm-hmm. the Art Arts Council has different collections every month. This is a collection uh, uh, that is amazing. And when you walk around City Hall, which I have done on the first floor, I haven't had a chance to look at the second floor yet. Uh, but I, when you told me that those were all junior high school Absolutely. students producing that art, uh-huh. that's what bowled me over. Yes. And, and you could see their passion in their artwork. And so I think it's it would really give us an opportunity to come together and see what children are thinking and what they can do. And I think some of the students will have a chance to interact with guests on Friday. So anyone that can come out would be appreciated. And you never know when people will hear a podcast if you're listening to this before 6 p.m. on February 11th. It's at City Hall. It's free. And there'll be not just the artwork, but there'll be programs Mm -hmm. uh, for you. And uh, if you can possibly go, I think that would be worth your while. Let's move on to something else, because I want to talk about uh, you and your role Mm -hmm. uh, in the HSC schools. First of all, just talk about a typical day for Taki Pettigrew, uh, the work you do, the responsibilities you have as Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer. Yeah, so it's a pretty broad um, position. Um, there, you know, every day is different. Um, obviously, I work with principals specifically, assistant principals, and discussions about achievement, 
looking at um, the achievement gap and, and strategies for improving um, with our most vulnerable student population. Um, we talk about discipline. Um, in, a, in an average day, I'm working with the teaching and learning department, discussing um, what does culturally relevant instruction look like? How do we engage students who perhaps were not engaged in an English class, for example? Perhaps there's materials that we can, that we can supplement that will help them feel more connected. Um, I talk a lot with our uh, director of mental health, Brooke Lawson. We collaborate quite a bit um, on um, making sure that we have restorative practices in place, making sure that we are discussing ways to engage students and also discussing mental health. That's also an equity issue. Um, conversations with equity coaches. So I do have the pleasure of overseeing about 56 equity coaches and then a district equity leadership team. And we have conversations quite often. We have our monthly meetings, um, but really it's about collaborating. So I, I often like to say that in this position, you're constantly stepping on toes, right? Because you're saying, well, let's, let's rethink that idea. Or does that seem inclusive? And so that's an everyday Event And it's not shaped by an itinerary or an agenda, um, but it's shaped by what happens typically during that day. But there are some certain things that I do every day that relate to looking at discipline data, looking at achievement data, collaborating with the teaching and learning team to see how can we be more inclusive in each of our departments. Um, and so that's currently what I'm doing now. You mentioned cultural relevance. Mm -hmm. uh, talk about how that's part of what you do. What, do you. what do you mean when you say that? So, you know, every child has their own experience, right? And so they bring that to the classroom. You bring who you are to the classroom. You know, I often um, tell my kids, you know, you're not one person at home and one person at school. You are the same person. Now, how you behave may be a little different, right? But you are who you are and you bring that with you to school. And so I want someone that's going to capture the essence of who I am as a learner to help engage me in that content. Now, a big part of that, obviously, is the relationships that we build with students, right? And so if you don't have the relationship, then that cultural piece is irrelevant. But if you build the relationship and you begin to learn about the culture of the student, what languages are being spoken at home, when you learn about some of the cultural celebrations that students engage in outside of school, um, all of that can help factor into maybe the books that we choose in our classroom. Um, I used to always say, say for my son that he would love to read books about basketball players or soccer players, right? And so in a classroom, he would choose that first over some other book that perhaps my daughter would choose. And so it's being in tune with who the student is and what cultural experiences they bring to the classroom um, so that you can shape your instruction based on that. You know, I've often seen uh, discussions. In fact, I heard a discussion between Mayor Fadness and uh, our superintendent of schools here, um, uh, Yvonne Stokes, uh, Dr. Stokes and the mayor uh, had a, a Facebook Live discussion. Mm -hmm. And during that discussion, the mayor brought up an issue I've heard discussed in a lot of different uh, uh, places. And that's the difference between equity and equality. I think a lot of us don't think much about that. What, explain the difference between the two. Yeah, so equality, we haven't achieved equality yet, right? So, um, but equality, we all get the same thing. And um, when you think about equity, 
we're basing it on what the student needs. So I'll give an example. So at home, um, so my husband and I have three children, and the needs of our college student is different from the needs of our sophomore and our freshman. Also, I have a student that has severe asthma or a child that has severe asthma. So his medical needs are not the same as my other two children. So when he gets sick, I take him to the doctor. I don't take all three to the doctor, right? So when we think about equity, we've got to think about what does this student need to be successful? For some students, it may be a student that needs additional accommodations or supports in the classroom that we will define through our exceptional learners program. Um, For some students, it may be additional uh, supports for mental health. So every student doesn't need the exact same thing. And and sometimes when I hear um, that that there is concern about what equity means, as parents, we that's how we parent at home. We parent with equity. We give this child what this child needs. And what this child needs does not necessarily transfer to what the other child needs, right? It's the same in school. We can't apply this theory of every child just gets the exact same thing and hope for the best. That that will not um, provide the best results for our students academically or socially. I have a lot of teachers in my family, and they'll always tell me that uh, every student has to learn a, a little bit different way and that teacher has to do the best they can to adapt to that. That's a little right. bit what you're talking about. You also hit it home when you talked about asthma, because I'm the oldest of six, and all three of my brothers are asthmatics. Mm-hmm. In fact, it still crops up as adults, but it was horrible as a mm-hmm. child. So, uh, no, my, my brothers with asthma were treated differently than I, and that's, that is an example of equity. When you think about the word inclusion, which is also part of your job uh, description, uh, what does the word inclusion mean to you? So inclusion to me means that we accept all students, that we accept all people. And it's not even an issue of tolerance. It's an issue of acceptance. And so, um, you know, we are all born differently. We have different passions and interests um, and experiences. um, And we have to learn how to accept people for who they are. And so inclusion to me means that I don't look at you any differently because of skin color, because of gender identity, because of immigration status, because of religion, then how I look at this person over here. So when we think about being more inclusive, um, it's, it's difficult, right? When you think of, you know, I was born in Virginia, but lived in South Carolina, basically my whole life, very rural area, um, very, um, uh, church was a big part of our day-to-day life. Um, and so when you think about even the way you're raised, sometimes we, we think of, you know, some of these um, um, restrictions that are placed on us based on religion. I can attest to that as, um, as a child. But as you grow up and learn, yes, are you asking, asking a question? No, I'm listening. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. No, don't, uh, I'm just, don't, don't mind about, me. You're trying to say no, 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 I'm question. listening. Go ahead, please. So as you, as you get older and you see the world from a different perspective, and, and for me, when I left South Carolina and saw how big the world was, there are so many different types of people in this world. And who am I to, to, um, to say to someone else that you have to believe what I believe, right? I think that inclusion means that we accept people for who they are, 
from the moment that we see them and that we don't come to them with this notion that you have to believe what I believe. You have to be what I am, that you are who you are and I will accept that. Um, And so when you think about a district that has 21,000 students, you have to understand that that's a lot of families, a lot of belief systems, a lot of religions. Um, And so we have to be inclusive. There's not one standard norm that works for 21,000 students. It's interesting you mentioned that because many, I've been covering the school board for well over 10 years, and this is a long time ago, predates you and most of the, a lot of the administrators here. I think it was uh, some people from a university, I want to say it was Ball State, who mm-hmm. came in and tried to talk to the board and some of the, some of the administrators about, about some of these issues. And, and made a suggestion I'd never heard before. I said, okay, if you have students in your class who maybe are, have different backgrounds than you, one way you can try to connect with them is go to a church service in their neighborhood. It will mm-hmm. probably be unlike anything you've ever seen, but you will understand. You don't necessarily have to be a member of that church. Mm-hmm. Just experience their church experience. Go to a, a hairdresser in mm-hmm. their neighborhood. Just sit down and, and see what people talk about, what the... You know, and, and just the other places that were gathering places mm-hmm. in the neighborhood where those people live. And I'd never heard that suggestion before. I don't know how many people took them up on it, but it ties right into what you're mm-hmm. saying. You you may not have the same background as this person, but understanding where they come from is part of understanding what they need in their educational experience. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. And that's a great example, Larry. So when I, um, I taught for over 20 years, I taught English high school and religion is a big part of a person's identity, right? It's huge. And I would have students all the time invite me to their church. Um, And so I would often go and visit churches that I never heard of um, in neighborhoods that I never been Um, And it was really a joy because when you walk in and you have a student that you're coming to visit their church um, and they turn around and see you, they think, wow, this teacher does care about me and does care about my experiences. And so that's a piece of it. Um, And I think a lot of teachers do that. They really integrate themselves into the experiences of their students. You've already talked about curriculum, but I want to talk about it in a a particular way. Uh, The school board had a work session and I do want to say that you know, a lot of people like to go back when I when I talk about a school board meeting and try to find the video. Mm-hmm. Well, for financial and contractual reasons, work sessions, which are, are held without votes, uh, usually background type information, are not video recorded, just right. so you know. So don't, if I'm talking about these meetings, these work sessions, mm-hmm. they're not video recorded. You won't be able to find them on the video list. But the school board having this work session several months ago, it was, it was all about curriculum. And it was kind of a joy for me because – as an education reporter, what school boards deal with every, you know, couple of times a month or more is usually arcane sorts of things. They're approving mm-hmm. a contract, they're approving mm-hmm. a bid, they're talking about a building. Not that those things aren't important, but it's amazing when I cover a school board election and hear what the candidates say and then talk to them after the, the people who win the election are on the school board for a while, and they say, wow, that's a lot different than I expected. Mm-hmm. So having an entire work session on curriculum was, a, was kind of a refreshing thing. And within that discussion, there was, there was a, uh, a comment made by the, the assistant superintendent, Matt Kegley, who has a lot to do with, with the curriculum part of, of HSC schools. 
And he talked about your role. I'm not sure you were even there, but talked about your role when there are certain groups within the school district that appear to be struggling. It could be any kinds of, it could be ethnic, it could be, it could be uh, other economic type groups. It's a group of people that can be identified through data, and they are having a different issue academically than some of the others. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how you become involved in that. You've already touched on that. Talk, talk more about what happens in a case like that. Yeah, so uh, oftentimes I will provide professional development um, for a building. I'll go in and have um, a workshop with the teachers, um, and we'll discuss some of the data. We'll look at the data and compare our school data with even national data or state data. And so one of the parts that, that I look at specifically is how are students of color achieving um, academically um, at HSC schools? And so you know, we've done a lot of conversations or had a lot of conversations around being aware that there is a disproportionality, right? And so when we look at the data, we see across all um, identifiers that students of color, whether it's exceptional learner, SES, um, that they have um, different outcomes, right, um, than their counterparts. And so when I go in and work with with principals or with teachers or with equity coaches, I'm really providing um, some feedback, really more along the lines of coaching, some awareness for how we can mitigate that gap. How can we address the challenges that we see with our most vulnerable populations? And so what Dr. Kegley really alluded to was working hand by or side by side with the principals to ensure that there are Um, opportunities for access for students of color, that there are opportunities for students of color to, to, again, mitigate that gap, and for us to look at that group specifically, because I think overall in our data, you know, we're, we're an A school, right? But when you dig into the data and you look at what, what are students of color doing as it relates to discipline and academics, and it really doesn't change based on some of the national and state norms. And so we have to, knowing, knowing that all of this is tied to post-secondary opportunities, right? We have to look at this and aggressively make a change so that kids of color can have a very similar outcome in terms of going to college, going to the Army, um, getting a job um, that pays well, right, outside of or once they graduate from HSC schools. There's something new that's come in, and I've seen a lot of uh, written and said about this in the corporate world, certifications. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a one- or two-year certification will qualify you, and that's another post-secondary. This is something that is not college but will certify you. A lot of times this happens in, in, in an IT technical area, but it's not limited to that. Absolutely. Uh, so a certification, in fact, I think I, the IBM CEO said a couple of years ago that he was looking for college graduates, but like 50% of who he intended to hire in the next 10 years would have not a college degree, but a certification that he would mm-hmm. be looking for as a corporate head. So that's all that post-secondary uh, issue you talked about. This is the second time I've heard you talk about uh, your equity coaches, mm-hmm. uh, and that they were they were around before you actually Absolutely. took They've this job. Absolutely, they've been here for a while. And these equity coaches are people in the various mm-hmm. buildings. What do we have? Twenty six buildings, or twenty two. Twenty two. I'm sorry, I gave us uh, some extra ones. Sorry, uh, twenty two buildings where learning goes on. School buildings in this uh, school district, and uh, as I understand it, you have one or more equity coach in Mm -hmm. each of those buildings. Uh, Talk more about the role they play. 
So when you talk about equity, you know, one person doesn't hold all the cards, so to speak, right? And so equity has to be a system value. And so to have a system value, you have to have people that are in that system that will help cultivate that. And so from a building perspective, every principal has a team of equity coaches. And so in the elementary schools, um, intermediate, junior highs, you may have anywhere from two to three per building. And then when you get to the high schools, they each have, I believe, five um, for each school. And so the equity coaches work with the um, principal um, to make sure that the equity initiatives in that building align with the school improvement plan. And so we want to make sure that we're not just bringing awareness to equity, but that we are also seeing um, some results in in terms of achievement. And so they sit down and work and probably meet uh, at least once a month to talk about some of the data, to look at the school improvement plan. They also provide... um, professional learning opportunities for teachers in their building. And so that's how equity kind of spreads and builds capacity is that we have people in each building who are really promoting the ideals of making sure that all students have access and opportunity, making sure that there is a curriculum in place that engages all students. And the equity coaches do that in their building. Well, I want to move on to something else. And this is another work session that I witnessed some months ago. And and you were addressing the board, and one of the board members asked you about critical race theory. We've Mm -hmm. all heard about this. It's being discussed um, at the state and national level. It's also called CRT. When you were asked about that, your response was that, in in your view, CRT has become politicized. Mm -hmm. Explain what you meant by that. Yeah, You know, most people have not or did not hear about CRT until maybe the last year or so. Um, and then it became this buzz buzzword. Um, I think it's become politicized because it's it's we're exchanging conversations for race and racism with the word CRT, and when in fact they're not the same at all. Um, and I think what happens is is that we hear. Um, CRT, we hear the word discomfort and we think, well, this is going on in our schools because we're talking about race and racism when that's not, that's not true. And I think what we have to do is go back to what is important for our students to help them build the skills that they need to solve future problems, future complex problems. And a part of that is not avoiding issues of race, right? Because when you think about marginalized communities, they can't opt out of of conversations around race. Um, So we have to have those conversations, but CRT specifically is not, I I, I tell you, Larry, I, I studied um, in my my last degree program. I talked a lot about CRT in articles in the classroom because that was the topic for the class, right? So it was read about this. Let's discuss it. That was really one of the first times that we had talked about, or I'd even examined CRT. And that's a 40-something-year-old woman, right? And so this isn't something that you just talk about or stumble upon in a classroom. You just It just doesn't happen. And so I'd like to see us move away from talking about CRT as a mainstay in a classroom to talking about how can we, as a school community, as Fisher's community, as a state, become better at talking about complex issues so that we can move the country and move our school and our students forward. I always said if we're worried about 
you know, students feeling discomfortable in class, uh, I never would have had to dissect that frog in biology. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> for sure, for sure. So I, I don't know if you take that concept, I don't know where you want to go with that. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to academics a little bit because uh, you already touched on the COVID pandemic. And at the very beginning of that, um, you know, we didn't really know much about COVID. We didn't know a lot about how it spread. We knew it spread in a couple of different ways. And as the, the scientists tried to learn more about it, most schools went to e-learning. We mm-hmm. did for a period of time that we did a hybrid where you're e-learning part of a two-week period you're in school. It was so stressful for the students and the teachers and, quite frankly, all the families and parents. It was hard on everybody. Uh, but I have been looking at what uh, has been presented at some of the school board meetings and, and, and work sessions. And uh, it appears to have had a, a particular impact on some of the minority community mm-hmm. students. Talk about that. Well, as you talk about COVID, let me first say that um, when we talk about um, excellence in Black History Month, Dr. Corbett, who works for Moderna, um, young Black scientist who helped, one of the lead scientists who helped discover the COVID vaccine for Moderna. Mm-hmm. So those are little small little tidbits that, that are, are good to know during Black History Month. But um, in general, there has been disproportionality prior to COVID. Um, it's not anything new, right? And lack, lack of technology, lack of access, um, lack of, of Wi-Fi. Um, and so that, that predates COVID. But I think COVID really allowed us to see, it really exacerbated some of the challenges that students have, whether it's students of color, whether it's students that have financial insecurity. And so it exacerbated what we already knew that there was a disparity there. And so we had to come to the table and say, how can we look at these disparities and still create a learning environment in which all students are included and can participate in that. If they don't have access to Wi-Fi, then they can't participate. If they don't have access to a computer, they can't participate. So for example, and this obviously predates me because I didn't start until uh, 21, but um, the district provided um, Wi-Fi for um, our hotspots for students that needed it. The district wanted made sure that students had access to a computer, right? And so there were different steps that Jeff Harrison and technology, Dr. Kegley, that they took to ensure that students had access to the learning environment, even though it was in their home. Um, but I think when we look at some of the, um, the challenges with COVID, that it allowed us to at least see that we have to rethink how we do education. Because while this happened now, this could happen again. I mean, and maybe not in our lifetime, but it could happen in, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And we have to at least learn from this. And how can we ensure that kiddos have the opportunity to learn, even if they don't have the financial um, security, even if they don't have some of the technology? Um, but it did exacerbate that. And, and it became a learning opportunity for the, for the district. What I found interesting during that period was not only were there people who had financial barriers to getting Wi-Fi and, mm-hmm. and, and Internet access for their for their uh, education. You know, uh, we think of Fishers when we think of HSC schools. HSC schools takes in the entire township of Wayne Township. Uh, a lot of that is rural. Some of those people don't have easy access to Internet. Yep. And so the hotspots were put out there as much for them mm-hmm. as anyone else. So there were lots of people Absolutely. who needed extra help to, uh, to for that e-learning to work for them. And that's and, what I, I talked about, some of the stresses yeah. everyone had. That's part Absolutely. of it. And you know what? I think, Larry, that people may make the assumption that because it is Fishers, that everyone has access. 
And, and that's just not true, right? Um, and so that's a great point that you made, that there are people that don't have access that we don't even think about. Well, and if you don't think that there is poverty in the Fishers area, talk to the township trustees at Delaware and Fall Creek mm-hmm. Township. They'll tell you a different story. Talk to the people at the Youth Assistance Program. Mm-hmm. I My eyes were opened when I started talking to those folks. Uh, mm-hmm. There are people in Fishers and surrounding area who definitely have trouble affording yep. some of the basics. Um, there are people sometimes who ask me, why Why does HSE School District need an equity and inclusion officer? So how would you respond to that question? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes we can get in the habit of um, continuing past practices, right? That in, And if we don't have someone to consistently sound the alarm that we may continue with those past practices. Um, And I think that districts are starting to see even more today, not just districts, but corporations, that there are areas that we've overlooked. And and maybe it's not intentionally, but it's happened. And so we need someone to come in and say, you know, here's a problem. We see it with discipline or we see it with academics. We see it in corporations with the bottom line. What are we missing? Um, And so it allows us to put on a different pair of lens, so to speak, and see through that lens with the experiences of people that are unlike our own. And what are we missing in the classroom? How, why aren't we connecting with students of color? Why aren't we connecting with our ENL students? What can we do better? And so this position allows us to constantly bring it to the table and say, yep, but let's think about this, right? And so it, it really is an opportunity more so um, for us to really come together, collaborate, and just be better as a district. One last question I have for you. I know you have children, as you've mentioned before, in the HSC schools. Mm-hmm. You had children in the HSC schools before you mm-hmm. came to work for the school corporation just over a year ago. What I'd like you to do is, is sort of compare how you assess the district as a parent, and now that you've been in the administration team for more than a year has that changed your view of the school district and looking at it from that perspective? Well, I think there's always a different perspective when you're inside the system, right? So being a district administrator, I, I'm obviously more you know privy to things that I would have than as just a parent, right? So um, I do think that there have been instances before coming to work here where you know, um, I kind of stretched my eyes or thought, mm, that doesn't seem right, or um, I'm not comfortable with that. But I've always, my husband and I have always been advocates for our children. And so as an educator, I, I know how the system is supposed to work. And so we can always say, nope, that's not right. That's not going to happen. And we can go to the school and, um, and make corrections so that our kids um, would be able to be successful. Now, as an administrator, I do see sometimes, you know, things that, that obviously I'm, they're not pleasing, right? Because in our jobs, Dr. Kegley, Dr. Lowe, Michelle, we all see things that need improvement. And luckily, they have not been so disastrous, so to speak, or they haven't been so chaotic or so um, um, difficult uh, for us to address. But as a parent, I'm always looking for, and, and my kids will often say, Mom, take off your work hat. It's just you, mom. It's, you know, because I'm always dissecting it through the lens of an administrator. Um, But I have always been 
an advocate for the school system here. Part of the reason that we moved here um, almost 20 years ago was the school system. That was one of the reasons that my husband and I chose Fishers to live was because we wanted our kids to have a great education. Um, But with that, there are challenges. And um, as an administrator, as parents, as community members, we're not absolved of our responsibility to improve um, schooling for all children. Um, But I do see things a little differently on this side, but I'm still excited by where they are. Um, Both of my kids are in high school or the kids that we have here are in high school um, and they're doing well and they have amazing teachers. Their principal, Mr. Urban, is just amazing, which I must say he's also a DePaul grad and I'm a DePaul grad. So we got that connection. and um, they're, ha- they're having an amazing year. And it's been difficult because they were not in school for a couple of years. They, they did an entire year from home. Um, but I think that knowing that there is a system or a school that is accessible and has opportunities for both of them makes my husband and I happy as parents and also me happy as a district administrator. Well, my daughters uh, are 28. The twin daughters are 28 now. They're graduates of Fishers High School mm-hmm. and uh, college graduates. And uh, I think uh, HSC schools prepared them well for that. Anything you would like to add before we wrap this up? Well, I, I'm excited that I was able to sit down and talk with you today. I would encourage um, you know parents and community members to really get out and support the kids this month. Um, These are student-led initiatives, and so if we can drive support to those, that would be awesome. Um, But also just making sure that this Black History Month, again, is not just a month of isolation, that we continue to learn about Black History Month, 365 days, 24 24 hours a day. It's accessible to us. We can learn something new every day. And so this is just an opportunity to remind everyone um, that we can do our part to be better with each other and learn more about each other. Nataki Pettigrew is the Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer for the Hamilton Southeastern Schools. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Be kind.